welcome to the Environmental Justice Report with me, your host, Janine Moloff. Well, we've got a lot to talk about tonight, and uh, it's going to be a little fast and loose uh, because we had to look at so many different things. So we're going to start first with our main story, and that is how slap suits, as they're known, enable environmental disaster. Now, last week, noted environmental activist Maggie Herchala joined us and explained how she was, if you will, slapped with what is really just a frivolous lawsuit by a mining corporation. The lawsuit had actually no merit, but it was allowed to commence. The judge in that local case in Florida limited what the jury could consider as relevant facts by forbidding any testimony related to First Amendment rights. Uh, now, most people consider the First Amendment in terms of free speech or religious rights, but they forget another very important aspect, because there's five parts of the First Amendment. And the last part is, quote, the right to petition government for redress of grievances, end quote. That means you have a right to go to your government, whether it's local, state, federal, and say, hey, you're doing something wrong. I don't agree with this. Uh, I think this is unjust. And they're not, you're not supposed to actually have to face any criminal prosecution. And actually, you shouldn't have to face any civil lawsuits as well for utilizing your rights. And Maggie was denied that right by the judge's order, which is common among what has been termed as slap suits. So in Maggie's case, the mining company claimed torturous inter- interference, which means the case was considered that it was, it was somehow interfering with the company's right to make more money. But Maggie had nothing to do with that. This was really about um, basically talking to her local council and saying, wait a minute, I think, you know, this, I think we need to look at this again in terms of any, you know, review of a, any license. But the judge said, no, you can't look at that, all right? So slap suits, what are they? Well, first of all, slap is an acronym, okay? The letters actually stand for something. And it stands for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. Okay, so in short, these slap suits, they're usually civil lawsuits. They usually have no merit or very little merit. They're filed by corporate interest and their intent, their entire reason to exist is to silence and destroy any criticism or public participation. The fact that most of these corporate entities have so much money they can afford basically an an army of attorneys uh, really makes the average person, hmm, can I afford to defend myself against this? Am I going to have to lose my house paying the lawyer bills just defending myself? And that's why they're they're, basically these attorneys, these corporate interests, they, they lawyer up so heavily They don't even have to be good lawyers, frankly. All they have to do is wait off the clock until that citizen or that community group runs out of money and just gives in. So that's what slaps are. And they really exist solely to silence the public because God forbid in an alleged democracy, we should have the ability to, as equals, to go in front of a, a governmental entity and say, wait a minute. Corporation A isn't following the rules. Corporation A does not have the right to poison our water, allegedly, or whatever. But not according to SLAP. This is 
another way the rich and powerful basically bully the rest of us. All right? And all they do is wait out the clocks. Now, slap suits are particularly notorious in environmental justice cases. They're a key instrument in maintaining the present carte blanche uh, that polluting industries have historically enjoyed. The ties to the many uh, times we've talked about environmental racism on this program are also very evident. So let's look at this. So there's a group, and it is a, a, a public rights group called the Public Participation Project. Okay, how's that for alliteration, the PPP? I'm just kidding. The Public Participation Project, and, it's, and I call this a slap suit primer, okay? The Public Participation Project, their, their motto is they're fighting for free speech. So they go into this in more detail and say, first of all, what is a slap? And they, just as I said before, you know, the First Amendment is enshrined. And you we all know that you have to have free speech and debate because it's vital to the well-being of a democracy. Now, there are some on the conservative side of things that would argue that what Donald Trump and the late Rush Limbaugh do constitutes free speech. Free speech does have limits, all right? You can't knowingly slander, libel, or defame a person or incite a riot. There are consequences. And the conservative end of the spectrum doesn't like it when somebody says, wait a minute, right of rebuttal is not censorship. You're using your free speech, right, free speech rights, and I'm using mine. They don't like that. So the Public Participation Project, getting back to this, this is a group, and they talk about how SLAPS, again, it's an acronym for Strategic Lawsuits Against Public Participation. It's been around for a while. They've just become more notorious in recent decades. And the, what they do is they really chill anyone who dares to go up against any sort of corporate entity or anyone with deep pockets. And they target those who communicate, especially with the government, or speak out on issues that affect everyone, the issues of public interest. Flats are used not only to silence anybody who dares to criticize big corporate, but they're also, they're also used to harass people as well. And in essence, what they do is they force you to basically, basically spend everything you have, you know, basically bankrupt yourself to defend yourself against these frivolous lawsuits that a an honest judge would have tossed out because they have no merit. But once again, that doesn't happen. And you have to realize that the people, the law firms and the corporate entities that file these slap suits, they're not trying to seek any justice. They're intended specifically to intimidate and silence. That's it. And again, they drain the target's financial resources and their frivolous lawsuits. So you ask yourself, why wouldn't a legitimate judge look at the case on its merits and say, this is frivolous and toss it. It's a perfectly legitimate question. I wish I had an answer. I don't. That's probably going to be another show. So let's move on with this. So you have to remember, how many of us have five, 10, 50,000, 100,000, whatever, for a retainer to defend ourselves? The average person just doesn't. Unless, of course, they're going to put up their house. So these things are happening all over the world, actually. So I saw this article, and it was uh, an article written by Otto Saki, 
who's the Global Program Officer of Civic Engagement and Government um, on slap suits in South Africa. Okay? And he goes on, this was written in uh, June of 2017. And he explains how uh, frontline defenders published an annual report on human rights defenders at risk. And he prefaces all this with saying that, you know, in 2017, at the time this was written, uh, worldwide some 280 activists had been targeted and murdered in 2016, and approximately 136 of them were environmental rights activists. So you've got these extrajudicial killings going on, and that gets the media's attention. But corporate interests, at least more directly, are a bit sneakier. They use something that's less violent, at least less, less physical violence, let's put it that way. It is definitely financially violent. And that's the slap suit. And basically, these lawsuits do have a chilling effect on activism. The Center for Environmental Rights, <coughs> excuse me, which is a, 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 an environmental rights group in South Africa, was hit with a slap from an Australian mining interest. Okay, and the Center for Environmental Rights in South Africa, or the CER, they help communities not only protect themselves, but act, actually go to court and hold businesses accountable when they, when these same businesses exploit natural resources and, you know, basically just don't play by the rules. And what happened was this Australian company, ironically, filed a defamation suit against CER lawyers and against a community activist. Uh, this was based on statements that the CER lawyers and the community, the unidentified community activists allegedly made during a presentation, sorry, during a presentation, um, I lost my place here, at the University of Cape Town. Hopefully I did not disconnect myself. Hold on. No, we're still going. Good. Okay. Don't you love technology? So they gave a presentation at the University of Cape Town, and the company, this Australian mining interest, is claiming that um, the statements made by CER, CER attorneys, okay, who know the difference between defamatory statements and not, the company claims that the statements that were made were defamatory. And, you know, a little background, the local community was really opposed to this, this Australian company's proposal. And it involved what they said, quote, exploiting the mineral sands mine on South Africa's west, co west coast. And the, the community there, they were pointing to their own constitution. Apparently, the South African constitution um, actually not only protects the rights and responsibilities uh, of the people, you know, if, if the government, you know, from keeping, from, excuse me, protects individuals from the government doing too much or abusing them, but it also makes private actors equally liable when they fail to um, basically keeps private interests uh, liable when these private interests refuse or fail to basically obey the Bill of Rights in South Africa. And that's something we don't have here in the U.S. You know, here in the U.S., the Bill of Rights applies to any sort of governmental overreach that denies you your, your rights as espoused in the Bill of Rights. In South Africa, 
it's, it goes further. It not only does it prevent government overreach from denying you your civil rights, but it also prevents rich individuals and companies, in other words, private actors, from denying you your civil rights as well. That, that's an improvement. And this principle is something that's really very, very uh, respected in South Africa. Keep in mind, the South Africa is still a nation. The majority of the people there that are indigenous to South Africa are black. And the Australian mining interest is owned by whites. So you can see that there's, you know, the possibility of environmental racism just baked right in. So the principle they have is really enshrined in their in, in international norms, and it's really considered important, in fact, essential for protecting people's rights and giving a remedy when those rights are, are, um, are attacked. But again, the playing field's not equal because the law isn't always applied. And why? Because once again, the rule of thumb worldwide is he who has the deepest pockets that can afford the army of attorneys is the one that usually wins by default because they just wait out the clock, knowing full well that the average individual or even the average public rights group just doesn't have the funding to keep going a long protracted court, court fight Especially when, and on top of all, it's based on frivolous concerns. Now, do I believe for a minute that attorneys for the Center for Environmental Rights was, were so stupid as to make defamatory statements? No. That, that's, that's just such a ludicrous claim. I, I think I would be, if I were the judge, I'd be tempted to say, okay, mining interest from, South Af from uh, Australia, show your evidence. Where do you have any justification for making that claim? But again, big business has corporates amass such enormous power that the rest of us have very little chance. And they can, you know, they can pay for armies of attorneys, um, white collar law firms, auditors, security experts, investigators. You know, again, if you're facing that kind of arsenal, if you will, it's almost impossible to fight back. So to put bluntly, while the law states individuals have rights, they're up against an army of attorneys and corporate interests, again, with deep pockets. You don't have to be a smart attorney or a good attorney to win. You just have to have the clients with pockets deep enough to wait out the clock until the other side gives in, and then the corporation wins by default. And according to this writer, the use of slap suits in South Africa is increasing and becoming an unfortunate trend. And even if the company that brings a slap suit loses, the people that are forced to defend themselves still incur major expenses against a lawsuit that has little to no merit. And even if they're paid some sort of reparation, they're never back on equal footing. And the very rich and powerful know it. And a lot of times when these large corporations think, why do they bring slap suits? When they know they're in the wrong, when they're facing, say, a report that documents, verified and documents that they've caused environmental damage um, of a major level. When they violated federal laws, they go to the slap suit to evade their responsibility and to basically make the other side shut up. That's it. Now, one judge that presided over a slap suit, according to the Museum Institute, uh, was quoted as saying, quote, the conceptual thread that binds slaps, in other words, 
that they are suits or lawsuits without substantial merit that are brought by private interests to stop citizens from exercising their political rights or to punish them for having done so. The longer the litigation can be stretched out, the more litigation that can be churned, the greater the expense that is inflicted, and the closer the slap filer moves to success. The purpose of such gamesmanship ranges from simple retribution for past activism to discouraging future activism, end quote. And that's exactly what it is. You know, Maggie Herchala lost her case because of the way the judge uh, basically kept the jury from considering any First Amendment claims. And she, they wouldn't let the jury hear any of the rebuttal either. And because of that, Maggie was fined over $4 million. Now, she doesn't have $4 million, and they knew that. But when they went to look for it, they took her Toyota truck that had over 200,000 miles. We had her on last week. Um, they wouldn't, the sheriff wouldn't even let her drive it home first from court, right outside the courthouse. And then we were asking her, does she have furs? No, of course not. The, the attorney for the corporation looked at her wedding ring, and it was just a simple gold band, no diamond, nothing. They wanted to take her wedding ring. That's how vile these people are. So one of the things that this writer put up with said South Africa needs to revise court procedures. And one of the things that this particular writer, um, what was his name again? Hold on. Mr. I need new glasses, Otto Saki. One of the suggestions that he made, it's actually a really good one. Okay, and that is, it should be easier for judges to scrutinize these frivolous lawsuits and determine whether or not it's even meritorious to bring to court so that it would be easier for judges to say, look, this is without merit and toss it. The other thing he says is civil society has to recognize that slap suits aren't isolated. They're not, they don't come out of thin air. They are part of a premeditated strategy to, as he puts a quote, distract and disable environmental activists and empower corporate interests. And I agree. Mr. Saki also said that if possible, activists should draw the attention of these of the companies, these actions in their countries of origin. In other words, embarrass the corporation and let the country of origin know that what you're doing, what your companies in your from your nation are doing is not just. Okay, embarrass them, in other words. Um, you know, once again, this is just something that has to stop. There's been other slap suits. Um, Core Watch, Corporation Watch, did some reporting. Um, Joseph Mendelson and Mark Helm, um, activists defeat coal industry slap suit. It was published by the Center for Food Safety and the International Center for Technology Assessment. And basically, environmental groups, this was, oh, went all the way back to 2001. They, um, they hailed a federal court's dismissal of a major lawsuit. This was filed by the coal industry. Um, the coal industry in 01 wanted to silence debate on global warming. Shock. I'm shocked. I can't believe it. No, I'm just joking. And the same coal industry wanted to push enormous damages against these groups for speaking about global warming. Okay, 
So not only do these industries that pollute, and the science is there, okay, fossil fuel is contributing to global climate devastation, no doubt about it. They not only want you to, to shut up, but they want to punish people that dare to tell the truth. And this is something that could really endanger journalism itself. Um, the lawsuit attack groups, they ran a newspaper ad in the New York Times in 1999, and the ad was titled Global Warming, How Will It End? And the ad highlighted causes and po possible impacts and possible solutions to global warming, and it did mention generically coal as one of the contributing causes. So the environmental groups denounced the lawsuit, said it's a classic slap, and slaps are frequently fired, filed by polluters and developers. Um, that particular lawsuit was filed by the Western Fuels Association, and that's an arm of the power industry. They purchase hundreds of millions of dollars of coal annually. Um, the suit <coughs> named the following as defendants, the Turning Point Project, the International Center for Technology Assessment, Friends of the Earth, Ozone Action, Earth Island Institute, and the Rainforest Action Network. <coughs> the lawsuit, excuse me, <coughs> they were trying to establish, in effect, a new legal precedent. And what they were doing is they were invoking what's called the Federal Lanham Act. Now, I don't know much about it, but what I found out is that the Lanham Act, the Federal Lanham Act, actually only applies to commercial speech among competitors. Okay, it would not apply to a case involving only political speech. So anyway, the environmental groups learned then that um, the federal district court in Wyoming dismissing the Western Fuel Association lawsuit slap. The opinion was by Chief Judge William Downs. He said the lawsuit was improperly brought in Wyoming and quote that Western Fuels uh, had failed to show why the environmental groups based in D.C. and San Francisco, should be sued in Wyoming, end quote. Uh, Western Fuels said any statement in the media connecting coal, just the term coal with global warming, um, should be construed, quote, as an attack on the Wyoming coal industry, uh, end quote. Uh, the court rejected that argument, saying that it, quote, does not agree with plaintiff's characterization of the subject of the action as coal, end quote, and instead held the case to be one about speech, okay? And the court also rejected Western Fields' argument that placement of the ad in the New York Times um, allowed, the, and on one of their on one of their group websites, allowed the case to be filed anywhere in the country. So apparently, since this ad was filed in the New York Times, but then copies of the same thing were on the the group's website. That anywhere you could look it up, anywhere in the United States, it, you could see it. So therefore, they could file anywhere in the country, and I guess that this Western Fields group wanted, they thought if they go to Wyoming, coal country, that they would get a sympathetic judge. That's kind of my theory. So anyway, the court said that, uh, even though this is an emerging area of the law, quote, an internet adv advertisement alone is not sufficient to subject the advertiser to jurisdiction in the plaintiff's home state, end quote. So basically the judge said, nah, not happening. Um, so once again, this is dealing with whether or not they had the right jurisdiction. It doesn't look like the act, the judge actually dealt with the idea that these environmental groups are bringing, that were being censored, okay? And um, 
it doesn't really protect free speech, but it was a mini, a mini uh, victory. There's been all sorts of slaps filed to silence individuals, uh, especially if they're trying to fight for environmental rights. Um, in 2000, Nebraska farmers were slapped for public comments on the environment. In fact, when we talk about food, probably the most famous or infamous slap suit known to man, it was in 96 when Oprah Winfrey was, if you recall, she was slapped. She was sued for making a comment about the beef industry. They were, remember they were talking about the whole mad cow situation. And all Oprah said was, I'm never eating beef again. And they slapped her with a lawsuit. And as rich as Oprah is, she backed down. Now, if you don't have the financial resources of someone like Oprah Winfrey, what chance do the rest of us have? Sorry Sorry about that, folks. Um, That was a mistake. Oh, don't you love technology? Getting right back to this. We're having some technical difficulties here. Give me a second. Hopefully, I didn't lose all the volume here. There's some technical difficulties. I'm hoping you all heard what I've just been saying. So, again, getting back to this Oprah Winfrey, you know, most infamous slap suit known to man in 96. The whole mad cow disease was a big concern. She heard the story on her show, and she just innocently said, and I'm repeating this because I don't know if the volume was turned off or not, and she just said, I'm never eating beef again. And they slap suited her. And she backed down. And when somebody who has the financial resource of Oprah Winfrey, you know, backs down to a slap suit, what chance do any of us have? So there were other slaps. Uh, Nebraska farmers were slapped for public comments on the environment in 2000. Apparently a hog producer in Furnace County Farms in Nebraska sued two local farmers for defamation. Because the farmers had written comments, had they filed about Furna's environmental record with the state regulators. And the farmers countersued under the Nebraska anti-slap law in an 05, the jury rejected Furna's defamation claim and ordered it to pay $900,000 in damages plus legal fees. This speaks very quickly, there's so much here we can't get through it all tonight. This speaks to the idea that we need anti-slap laws, okay? The fact is, None of us can afford to defend ourselves against a frivolous lawsuit, and yet there's nothing to prevent these lawsuits from being filed. Um, again, let's see now. And, and the idea was there was, no, there was no defamation occurring. They filed a complaint. They had a right to redress, uh, a right to petition government for redress of grievances. And Furness was just saying, no, you don't. That's defamation, but it was neither. Uh, let's see now. Let's move ahead here. There's a case in 01, Tosco v. Communities for Better Environments. In 01, there was a group of environmental advocates. They took out an ad in the New York Times, Global Warming, How Would End. Okay, that was the Western Fields one. I stand corrected. Sorry about that, folks. It's been a busy week. So we're looking at the idea that there, these slap suits have been all over the place. There are some people that are working to try and pass what are called anti-slap laws. And basically what that would mean is that these people with deep pockets could no longer file frivolous lawsuits that have no merit. 
and it's long overdue. In fact, I think the law firms that, partic- that knowingly participate in these slap suits, they should get one warning and one warning only. You get one strike and you're out. If it's a second strike, the attorneys involved should be disbarred because they're committing fraud and they know it. That's just my opinion. So Jerome Brown wrote something, increasing slap protection, unburdening the right of petition in California. And it's a comprehensive, comprehensive overview of anti-slap legislation in California, suggestions for improving it. Um, Michael Frumkin wrote something in 09, building the bottom up from the top down, University of Miami legal studies research paper. Um, Stephen Kling in Missouri wrote Missouri's new anti-slap law, Journal of Missouri Bar. This was in 05. It's a review of the Missouri anti-slap law. And to quote, it says, quote, examines the nexus between state and federal law where slaps are tried in the federal district court uh, sitting in diversity, end quote. Um, so there's several. One is Calvin Massey wrote something in 07, two zones of prophylaxis, the scope of the 14th, enforcement, 14th Amendment enforcement power. I like that term prophylaxis. It's funny. Uh, so, you know, once again, uh, there's also... There's a, a, a book up George, by George W. Pring and Penelope Canan in 1996, Slaps Getting Sued for Speaking Out. And Pring and Canan actually were the people that coined the term slap. And they were the first to research this, this phenomena and document it. Um, and their, their book provides an overview of slaps. And it also reviews state legislation um, that existed at the time of publication, which would have been 96, and a model bill. Okay, so we can go on here. And now we get to, this is really interesting, another group, <coughs> excuse me, and this, and this is an article written by Carol Muffet, who is the SEAL president, which is the Center for International Environmental Law. And it has kind of a funny little title, hey, have you, entitled, hey, have you been subpoenaed by Exxon yet? And, you know, apparently, this particular head of steel was, was sued by, um, by Exxon, all right? Uh, and so at the time of this writing, and this was done in, excuse me, looks like 2016, 20, I know I guess 2017, okay. So apparently at the time, um, what Exxon was doing they were looking at 16 public officials and attorneys that represented seven California cities and counties, including San Francisco, Oakland, Imperial Beach, Marin, San Mateo, Santa Cruz, and Santa Cruz County. And Exxon asked a state district court in Tarrant County, Texas, okay, these are in California, but in in Texas, to, quote, authorize depositions and other discovery against these officials in hopes that doing so will allow Exxon to sue them down the road. So Exxon went to court in Texas to ask for permission to begin the process to sue officials in California. Wow. All seven California jurisdictions at the time were suing Exxon and other fossil fuel producers for their role in, you know, causation of the climate crisis, and they used a variety of legal grounds and they had multiple law firms that were contributing, you know, their expertise. 
Uh, and apparently what Exxon was trying to do, they were trying to, according to this guy, circumvent attorney-client privilege and, you know, basically getting discovery not only from cities but from their lawyers as well. So basically it was a, they were tr- Exxon was trying to intimidate these attorneys. And, you know, SEAL's seen this before. They, uh, they claimed that in 2016 um, there were ongoing investigations by the attorney generals in New York and Massachusetts. Exxon then, get this, they sued the attorney generals in a federal district, district court in Texas. Now that, you have to grow a pretty big pair to do that, to have the colonies to do that, but that's what they did. 2016, the attorney generals of New York and Massachusetts were investigating Exxon. So Exxon went to a federal district court in Texas to sue the attorney generals in New York and Massachusetts. And the company once again alleged that the investigations um, were part of this massive, I guess, left-wing conspiracy and that public prosecutors and philanthropies and lawyers and NGOs and individual researchers were all working to bring Exxon down. This was conspiracy. And this man that wrote this article for SEAL, he's the president actually, Carol Muffet, he explained that um, on the day, the day after Donald Trump became president, that Mr. Muffet became, quote, a recipient of one of those subpoenas. And Mr. Muffet just said, quote, at this point, a subpoena from Exxon is almost a badge of honor, end quote. But apparently it's not an exclusive club. Um, Exxon had sent subpoenas to a whole host of individuals, foundations, public officials, besides the New York and Massachusetts Attorney General. The subpoenas didn't go anywhere, but they wasted time, energy, and they wasted money of these other people and organizations. And that's, that's a tactic to delay the investigation. And possibly it's a tactic to intimidate, including intimidate attorney generals that are duly elected to, you know, protect the public <coughs> and bring criminal prosecution. <coughs> Excuse me. So basically there were some interim orders, a series of them that were supposed to, that favored Exxon but after all this chicanery, all this nonsense, the federal court, even in Texas, said, look, they don't have any jurisdiction over that case. Um, you have to wonder why they keep going to Texas. I mean, the answer is almost self-explanatory, but once again, I have to ask the question. So, you know, once again, um, the court then in Texas ordered Exxon to refile its claims in New York. And after several months, Exxon lost nearly every stage of the proceedings. Uh, the most recent hearing of that case, New York case, there was a panel of New York, New York Supreme Court. They basically said that Exxon's, quote, quote, Exxon's purported constitutional claims are based on wild leaps of logic, end quote. Now, of course it is. It, it's a litigious version of the dog ate my homework, let's face it. But Exxon didn't give up, all right? Um, they just kept going around and round and round. And it, they used an argument in Massachusetts that was rejected, but they argued that California courts don't have personal jurisdiction over the company because it doesn't conduct business in California. But then they go around and they say that 
Exxon at the same time says that a Texas court should have jurisdiction over people from California and Massachusetts because they might be conspiring. Okay, you can't have it both ways. So this is the world of slap suits. And if you think this is really just ludicrous, it, it gets worse. All right, it just does. Um, so, you know, once again, um, Exxon, you know, again, the irony of their filings, it's just, it's ludicrous, okay? But they're going to keep crying that it's some sort of conspiracy. Now, I'm going, I'm not going to get through all this tonight because I want to get to our, we haven't done this in a while, our environmental, our section of environmental heroes, zeros, here are villains because tonight we have a big one. So going to wind up with this. Um, again, Carol Muffet, um, there's another article from SEAL, Center for International Environmental Law, really good group of people. You should look into it. Um, and the headline is, New Documents Reveal Oil Industry Knew of Climate Risk de Decades Earlier Than Suspected, Suggest Coordinated Efforts to Foster Skepticism. So it looks like basically all the way back in 1968, no, further than that, there was research uh, that the oil industry was aware of climate risk in the 1960s. There was also research carried out dating back from the 1940s. Um, where they were trying to use industry-funded research to build public skepticism about the dangers of fossil fuel. Okay, and in 1968, there was a report commissioned by the oil industry. It detailed rising levels of CO2 in the atmosphere. It warned of potential, uh, potential climate risk. It warned specifically of melting ice caps, rising sea levels, impact of fisheries, agriculture, and, and, quote, the potential for serious degradation of the environment on a worldwide scale, end quote, okay? So according, again, to Carol Muffet, who's the president and CEO of SEAL, quote, SEAL's findings add to the growing body of evidence that the oil industry worked to actively undermine public confidence in climate science and in the need for climate action, even as its own knowledge of climate risk was growing, end quote, okay? This is, and it goes on and on and on. I want to have time to get to our other story. Um, we're going to be talking more about SEAL, okay? Their research is really quite impressive, and that's the Center for International Environmental Law, um, and I'm lifting this straight from their website, quote, SEAL uses the power of law to protect the environment, promote, promote human rights, and ensure a just and sustainable society, okay? SEAL is a nonprofit organization dedicated to advocacy in the global public interest, including through legal counsel, policy research analysis, education training, capacity building, end quote. I would love to have Mr. Muffet on the show. We're going to see if we can do that. So, you know, once again, um, in 2016, uh, in D.C., the Center for Environmental Education, Environmental Law, that is, they launched a database, it's searchable, more than 100 documents that uh, also brought to the public new information on how the fossil fuel industry responded or failed to respond to growing climate change. Um, again, SEAL President Carol Muffet was quoted saying, quote, we now know that the oil industry was engaged in climate science by the 1950s and on notice of climate risk by the 1960s. The question arises, 
What did they do with that information? Our research suggests the oil companies invested more in explaining away climate risk than in confronting them, end quote. And there were key findings. The oil industry funded, as they became more aware of climate risk, they funded research into other pollutants that would offset warming, potential carbon sinks that would reduce the need to control emissions, and alternate theories of climate change that continue to be used by climate deniers, end quote. I'm just reading this straight from the paper, okay? Another key finding, quote, patent filings demonstrate that the industry had the technology to reduce carbon dioxide emissions as early as the 1970s. Exxon held patents for fuel cells and other clean transport technologies, even as they opposed government research funding for electric cars. Exxon and other oil companies patented technologies to cut CO2 emissions from gas streams in half that decided they were too expensive. Number three, quote, at the same time, oil companies invested in taller oil rigs that could withstand rising sea levels caused by climate change, and they patented offshore drilling rigs and ice-breaking tankers designed for oil-rich and rapidly changing Arctic environments, end quote. And another point, quote, beyond simply understanding climate, Exxon and other oil companies sought ways to control it. Industry-promoted studies argued that petroleum products could help control the climate, burning oil in the ground to clear away fog or blow away smog, coating large areas of the earth in asphalt to change rainfall patterns, or using oil slicks on the sea surface or carbon dust sprayed from aircraft to shift or weaken hurricanes, end quote. This is insanity, okay? Again, we're going to be talking about this again, but... Basically, what you need to know about slap suits is just it is a tool of financial violence to prevent people from not only engaging their government for redress of grievances, but to shut them up. Again, I refer back. All you need to know about slap suits is this. In 1996, the most infamous slap suit, I've said this twice before on the show, was uh, aimed at Oprah Winfrey when she was hearing the stories about, wild, uh, about mad cow disease, innocently said, I'll, never eat, I'll need, never eat a hamburger again or a steak again. They sued her, and with all the financial resources she has at her disposal, she had to back down. Talk about a, a David and a Goliath. The fact is, slap suits are cases that lack merit, they are frivolous, and we have to not only have anti-slap laws in effect, but judges have to have the ability, in fact, judges should have the responsibility to toss lawsuits that are based on frivolous ideas. Furthermore, law firms and the attorneys that bring these slap suits, you get one, you get one out, and after that, yeah, they should be disbarred because that's a fraudulent use and abuse of their, you know, of their license, no doubt about it. Um, so we're going to go into this more, but I wanted to talk about Environmental heroes, zeros, and villains. And tonight, we have a big one, okay? And that is, you know, by now, everybody knows that Rush Limbaugh has passed away. And I was on Facebook, and I saw not just conservatives, but I saw mainly white men that called themselves liberals, chastising and admonishing anybody who just said, woohoo, we're glad he's dead. You know, the fact that Rush Limbaugh routinely slandered, libeled, and defamed all sorts of minorities, 
the fact that Rush Limbaugh uh, really, before there was Fox, Rush Limbaugh was Fox. And he built the platform that Donald Trump walked onto. There's no other way to put this. And Rush Limbaugh loved basically slandering all sorts of groups, including environmentalists. There were femme Nazis, there were environmental Nazis. You know, again, Rush Limbaugh just basically said, you know, whatever came to mind, and usually what came out of his mouth was basically verbal excrement. But I wanted to talk about him, all right? Because, you know, Rush has passed away, and I saw this article in Rolling Stone, and it was written by Bob Moser, okay? It's just published. And he wrote that Limbaugh, among other things, quote, corrupted the GOP. I would disagree. I mean, most of everything that that Moser wrote in this article, I agree with, except that. I don't believe that Rush Limbaugh corrupted the GOP. I think that Rush Limbaugh just brought all the ugliness of the GOP to the surface. Instead of the sophistication and false manners of William Buckley, he brought it front and center in all its in all its excruciating obscenity. That's what he did. So and and as for you know the newer version, you know George W. Bush's compassionate conservatism, I never bought that. I'm just gonna say I never bought that bullshit. All right. The GOP has always been the party of the rich and the bigoted. Because let's face it, the Republicans have nothing to offer. The average worker who is not rich is not willingly going to say, sure, I'll vote for you guys. I don't care about union rights. I don't care about getting a decent pay. No, they're not going to say that, okay? The GOP knows the only way that they can stay in power is through this dirty triad, okay? One, massive voter suppression to make sure that minorities, especially communities of color and and progressives, they either don't get to vote or their votes are tossed. That's one. Two, you have also a GOP that builds this massive propaganda wing, and Rush was a big part of it. In fact, I would say Rush was the keystone of basically modern propaganda in the United States and the West. Before there was Steve Bannon, before Fox was Fox, before Tucker Carlson managed to grow himself a pair, there was Rush Limbaugh. And he laid the groundwork for Trumpism. No doubt about it. Okay, Rush Limbaugh dealt in hatred and racism and lies over and over and over again. There's no guesswork here. His ditto heads, these were just, in my opinion, angry white men that resented having somebody tell them, no, you can't just insult people and tell lies about them with impunity. People are going to hold you to it. They're going to hold you responsible for your actions. And, you know, people that are privileged don't like that. Bottom line. So those of you that are saying we should be better than this, we should show some sympathy for Rush and his family. My answer very simply is this. I will show Rush and his family and his ditto heads the same amount 
of compassion they showed their targets, which was none. The fact is this, Rush Limbaugh was the chief abuser in an abusive society. He dealt in half-truths, falsehoods, outright lies. He slandered, libeled, and defamed and incited with impunity. Everything was a joke, but it was a tasteless joke. And when they talk about cancel, when the the conservatives whine about cancel culture right now, they're the ultimate cancel culture. You know, they want to be able to insult and lie and defame and slander and libel with impunity. But when you dare to rebut their, you know, to rebut and challenge what they're saying, then you're censoring them according to them. The right of rebuttal is not censorship. It never was and it never will be. It's rebuttal. And free speech rights do not include the right to slander, libel, or defame, or incite with impunity. Everything has consequences. It just does. And what Limbaugh did is he pushed crude stereotyping. You know, some of the things he said, this is the man that he wants to show some compassion for. Again, I don't believe in appeasing our abusers. And that's when you're talking about showing compassion for the likes of Rush Limbaugh and his followers, you're talking about appeasing an abuser. It doesn't work. They just keep abusing. You have to stand up to them. So some of the really vile things he said, um, just beyond belief, um, you know, when he was gay bashing, he did these AIDS updates and he introduced them by the song, quote, I'll never love this way again. And when he was talking, when he was pushing misogyny, he was quoted saying, quote, I love the women's movement, especially when walking behind it. Look, Rush Limbaugh wasn't selling political ideas, according to Moser. That's true. He wasn't. He was selling an attitude. But he was also selling this idea that that white males had the right to offend others and the, the subjects of their of their insults, of their lies, didn't have the right of rebuttal, didn't have the right to say, no, you're wrong. And that's nonsense. And so how did someone like Rush Limbaugh rise, which led, as far as I'm concerned, to the rise of Fox? It started with somebody that the Republicans loved to say was a good guy and and wasn't, um, you know, wasn't a bigot at all, Ronald Reagan. When Reagan abolished the Fairness Doctrine, that led to the age of Rush. That simple. Okay, because then you did the, the fairness doctrine, for those of you that are too young to know about that, basically meant that until 1987, the federal policy said that broadcasters were required to present, quote, fair and balanced news coverage, and that included equal time for both sides. So if, if the fairness doctrine had been in, in effect when Rush was really doing his, was building his career, then he would have been forced to have people on the show rebutting what he was saying, but that didn't happen, okay? And this is an instance where I don't wish for anyone's death. I I never would, but no, especially no white male has a right to admonish the rest of us who are Russia's targets for expressing how we honestly feel. Am I glad Rush is dead? Oh, God, yeah. Ding dong, the wicked bitch is dead. I'm happy he's gone. Because all he did was fuel the fire. 
Now, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's ironic that his ditto heads will complain, oh, you're insensitive. But, again, the fact that they piled on somebody else didn't matter because, again, they're the only people in the universe that count, white Christian males. So, yes, I'm glad Rush Limbaugh's dead. I, I do not feel that he is owed any compassion or sympathy whatsoever. He was a foul human being. He, he caused a lot of pain in this society. He helped to incite what can only be called lynch mobs, which also included what happened on January 6th. He was also a lead denier in the fight on COVID. He's the one that made weaponizing the virus an issue. He made it look like wearing, like refusing to mask is some sort of patriotic move. And because he called mask wearing a symbol of fear, this virus has spread far more than it needed to. So yes, I believe that in part, the blood of some 500,000 needlessly dead Americans, yes, in part is on Rush Limbaugh, on his soul. So there are those of you that may disagree with me. That is certainly your right. But I will not appease an abuser, and I will not back down. And I I maintain the right of rebuttal is not censorship at all. So that's the environmental justice report for tonight. We will be talking more about, um, you know, some of these studies that SEAL pushed out, because apparently the fossil fuel industry knew quite a bit more than the rest of us did, about the looming global climate catastrophe. And people need to be held not only civilly liable, but criminally liable. So with that, I say good night. This has been the Environmental Justice Report with me, Janine Moloff. And I hope that we see you again next week. Good night and God bless.